In the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, we are presented with God's wonderful plan through the death and resurrection of Jesus to save for himself a diverse family of saints who are being transformed by Jesus to live like Jesus. This is Galatians, God's very good idea. And we are Mercy Village Church, located in Barbersville, West Virginia. And you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. The rain's back, right? I mean, so much for those 75-degree days that were sunny and beautiful. That was good. Tasted a little bit like fall. Loved it. Now the rain is back. But the lesson I learned this week happened during the rain of Monday and Tuesday. The back of our yard, and, and uh, Pastor Josh texted me and said, is everything all right? Like, uh, he said, we have water in our backyard. And I jokingly said, and if you've been to my, our house, you'd understand this. I said, if we ever have water in our home, then you'll probably need to start rounding up two of every animal because uh, we're in trouble at that point. We do have water, though, at the bottom of the hill in the back of our yard. It just flows down that hill from uh, all the different places. And there's a little bit of a trench that's there. And, and as I stood looking out our bedroom window over the yard, and Sarah Beth and I were talking, I said, you just can't stop the flow of water, can you? It just keeps flowing. But what I also noticed is that it can be diverted. Because in our yard, the, uh, where that trench runs down to keep the water out of the areas that are, are mowed and, and, up and uh, kept up, that trench has been filled with rocks and leaves, and now there's weeds and grass growing up in it. And so the water I saw on either Monday or Tuesday is diverted from the trench, and it runs across the yard in this place where I'm always getting hung up on my mower. It's made the ground very soggy there. In Galatians 4 verses 8 through 20, Paul is about to spell out some concerns he has for the churches of Galatia. And he's going to be to the point. He'll be a little bit blunt with them. Some might even say that he's harsh. Paul gets that reputation because he says things very deliberately and intentionally and pointedly. But what I think is often missed in the life of Paul is how he has earned the right to say those things to those people through compassion and care and love. Paul's earned the right to say these things to them through his selflessness, his sacrificial life to them. Compassion and care are two closely connected things that that play out in a sort of domino effect. And so Paul, as he speaks these concerns to the churches of Galatia, does so with compassion and care. And what we'll see today, what I pray we see today, is that the compassion and care of Christ flows downhill. And sometimes we, myself included, foolishly divert it, but it still keeps flowing. The compassion and care of Jesus keeps flowing. So, Father, today what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us. It's the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Verse 80 starts, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He's taking a look in the rearview mirror and asking them to take a look in the rearview mirror at who they were before Christ. 
Now, in the, in the churches of Galatia, there would have been uh, a lot of uh, astrology, worship that was rooted in astrology. There would have been a lot of, of worship that was rooted in ancient Greek deities, including Zeus and others. So that would have saturated the culture that was there. And before they knew Christ, many of the folks in the churches of Galatia were in that place, worshiping as Paul says, those that by nature are actually not gods. He calls them the look in the rearview mirror. God loves the rearview mirror, by the way. Not because we're driving backwards, because we're not. We're not mater from uh, cars. I might have dated myself there, but we're not. We're not driving backwards. That's not the focal point of our lives, the rearview mirror. But what some people like to do is, is, and I had a car like this at, at one point, where the rearview mirror was detached off the car. That's not healthy either. God wants us to remember the past. Not in an enslaving way, not in a guilt-driven way, not in a shame-driven way, but in a way that points to how far He brings His children. And so in the, in the Bible, you'll often see the authors of Scripture pointing back to the past, saying, remember where you were before God changed your life. Remember where you were before Jesus. That's an important uh, backdrop against which the grace of God is seen most beautiful. Another reason we look into the past is because there are promises from God in the past. When we look back and we see that day that we trusted Christ as our Savior, we're reminded of the promises that belong to the children of God. When we look back to our baptism or we look back to uh, times in our lives where God showed up and did extraordinary things in our midst and in our lives, we're reminded of how good God is. And so in the, back, in, the, in the rearview mirror of our lives, we find humility as we're reminded of who we once were. We find thankfulness as we're reminded of what God's done. We find honesty and love. We find compassion and care in the rearview mirror of our lives. And so he points them to the rearview mirror, and then he points them to, to what God's done in their lives. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, God. Don't miss that. There's two parts to that. He's pointing to the origin of compassion and care, God himself, through Jesus. Two things there, and they're huge. You know God, if you're a Christian, and God knows you. Simple sentences, but deeply meaningful. You know God, and you don't know him, if you're a Christian here today, as wrathful, you don't know him as vengeful. You don't know him as judgmental or condemner or punisher. You don't know him as a guilt tripper or a shamer. That's the first half of this big theological idea called double imputation. But I don't know why we give these big words to some of this stuff. It's a simple concept. Your sinfulness was imputed... This is the first of the two imputations. Your sin was imputed onto Jesus. All of your shortcomings, your sin, your wrong was carried on Christ to the cross. And with that was your punishment as well. It was imputed to him so that you could know God. So that you could know him as Abba Father, like we saw last week. Your sin stood between you and God. It separated you from God. 
And so when your sin was put on Christ, that problem was taken care of. But there's a second half to double imputation, and that is the fact that Christ's righteousness was imputed upon us. It didn't just end with like kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card where our sins are just kind of remembered no more, but beyond that, we don't just go from infinitely lost and sinful, we go to infinitely found and righteous before God. His righteousness, the righteousness of Christ is imputed upon us, and so God sees us as children. And we can cry out to Him, Papa, Daddy, as we saw last week. And that's why we can not only rest in the fact that we know God, but that God knows us. Think about that, by the way. Like, He really knows you. He knows you better than anybody else in this room, including the people that you've been the closest to your entire life. He knows your darkest moments. He knows your vilest sins. He knows the most shameful and cringeworthy things about you. Every single one of them. Not only what you did, but the motives of your heart when you did them. But yet, in Christ, He looks at you, and instead of seeing that, He sees the glory of His Son, Jesus. He sees the righteousness of His Son, Jesus. He sees the perfection of His Son, Jesus. You are known by God through the righteousness of Jesus. Which points us to the origin of compassion and care, which is Jesus. All compassion and care originates with Jesus. And so as Paul addresses the churches of Galatia with compassion and care, that compassion and care spills out of the fountain of all compassion and care, Jesus. Jesus went throughout all the cities, this is Matthew 9, in villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because he was, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was moved by compassion. Jesus moves towards you with compassion. And not only that, but with, with care. One of my favorite passages of all, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the fountain of compassion and care. We'll see in a few that this compassion and care had spilled over into Paul's life. This compassion and care had spilled over into the lives of the people in the churches of Galatia. It had permeated their hearts. But now it's been diverted. And that's the concern that Paul has. That this compassion and care is is being dried up in the churches of Galatia. It's not there anymore. He said, how can you turn back again to weak and worthless elementary principles or elemental principalities like they worshipped, you know. They worshipped earth, wind, and fire, I said last week. Not the band, but the elements. That was part of their life. How can you turn back to worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. Why do you want to go back to that way of living, he asks. And the evidence he points to for why he sees in them this desire to go back is an interesting one. He says you observe days and months and seasons and years. 
Now remember at the very beginning when we overviewed the book of Galatians, I said there's going to be three things that the folks called the Judaizers, those who had come in to the church of Galatia in Paul's absence and said actually grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone is not enough. You have to adhere to these portions of the Mosaic law. They were going to bring with them circumcision. That's one he's he's landed on a couple times. He'll, he'll, He'll land there again a few more times before the The book is done. He's going to talk about diet and eating habits. He touched on that when he was talking with Peter. And he was going to mention Sabbath days and sacred days. This is the first uh, time he does that. What had happened is that in the law of Moses, there are these feasts. There are these special days that are to be observed and to be observed religiously, legalistically, to be a, a faithful Jew, you had to adhere to these days. The Sabbath primarily occurring week after week after week. Paul says that if you embrace those things, you're you're just going back to just these elementary principles of before. Remember, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter uh, 2 of Mark He says to them, to the Pharisees, who are trying to force an observation of the Sabbath on him while he's healing people. He's healing people on the Sabbath, and they're trying to legalistically stand in the way of healing. And Jesus says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Paul can't possibly be saying that we shouldn't celebrate Christmas anymore. We shouldn't celebrate Easter anymore. We need to just throw our church calendars out the door. There shouldn't be any desire for rest, Sabbath rest in our hearts. What he's saying is when those things become markers of your relationship with Jesus in the sense that you must follow the calendar, you must observe the Sabbath in these specific ways, then we've lost sight of grace lost sight of mercy. So, he calls them away from that practice. Jesus takes the Sabbath and the sacred days from being a legal demand that would reveal sin inside of us, quite frankly, as the people of God failed to live up to the standard, and he takes it and makes it a means of grace. Now, Sabbath rest and holidays and special days that we still commemorate and And remember, they're simply means of grace that reveal God's beauty and sufficiency. That's huge. They're not legal demands. They're means of grace. But the Judaizers were trying to make salvation and sanctification contingent on teetotal obedience to the law. Complete adherence to it, not grace through faith. Legalism will divert compassion and care so fast every single time. When we start getting our list out and saying this is what it looks like to be a Christian and if you don't A, B, C, D, etc., then you're not truly a Christian, then all the people who get to make the list, it's usually those in charge or those who have some sort of leadership role, they start to get puffed up and feel pretty good about themselves. And, and those who don't live up to the list, they find themselves in a play that, place that deeply lacks compassion and care. Legalism will divert 
compassion and care so fast. But that's not how it has to be. That's not how it had been when Paul first came to the churches of Galatia on his first missionary journey, no. When he came there, there was a a downhill flow of Christ's compassion and care. We see it trickle down to Paul first. From Christ to Paul. And we see it between the lines of verse 11. He says, I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. He doesn't mean that he's afraid God's plan has been nixed. He 100% knows that in Christ his labor is not in vain. He's going to write that to the church at Corinth in chapter 15 of of 1 Corinthians 15. He, he, He certainly doesn't mean that he thinks God's plan has been derailed because of them falling away from from uh, loving grace and starting to to, uh, go after legal demands. No, he's speaking emotionally, from the heart. There's a churning inside of him because he loves these people. He labored over them. The Greek there is to toil over something until you're weary to your bones. He'd come to the church of Galatia with love, with compassion, And he had given his life over to the truth of the gospel being proclaimed and displayed in their lives. And he had sweat and bled and had late nights praying for and teaching these people. Surely you understand that. You invest yourself in a child or or in a friend or in a family member or in a, in a client, whatever work you might have, and a brother or sister in Christ, and you give genuine compassion and love and care to them only to see them walk away from the truth of the gospel, it breaks your heart. And you're tempted in that moment to feel as if it were wasted all that you've done. Remember, your labor is not in vain in the Lord, even when it feels that way. And so Paul's compassion and care is is evident here. He's afraid he's labored in vain, and that fear is rooted in his compassion and care for them. It trickles down, by the way. He loves what Jesus loves. Paul does. That came from Jesus. Remember, he was moved with compassion. Jesus was because he saw the people as a sheep without a shepherd. That's Paul's same heart. He sees the people as sheep without a shepherd, and he is moved with compassion towards them. And so he labors over them, proclaiming the same gospel that he proclaims now. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And that's a really weird way to say things, but it's filled with compassion and care. He says, become as I am. That may sound obtuse if it's by itself, but it's not. Because his next line is, For I also have become as you are. Here's his thought. This is what Paul would say if he was more wordy. He'd say, I used to think I was better than you before I met Jesus. I used to think I was better than you at the churches of Galatia because of the law. That's who I was. But now I know I'm just like you. Saved by grace through faith in Jesus or nothing. Paul knows now that he, his life was just as hopeless without Christ as the Galatians were. He had become like them. Just like you in Galatia, I knew it had to be grace alone, faith alone 
in Jesus. But now you at the churches of Galatia are trying to be like I used to be. You're trying to embrace the legal demands. You're trying to embrace these ways of living that are outside of grace through faith and in doing so become enslaved to the law and sin while at the same time being arrogant and puffed up at the same time, which leads to division and selfish behaviors. Become as I am now because I became as you are. There's compassion in the way he says that. Caring in the way he says that. It's unassuming. It's even patient the way he says it. It's honoring to who they had been in Christ during his first missionary journey. It's self-aware of who he was before he met Christ. It's, it's not rooted in shaming. It's rooted in beckoning. Come back to the good stuff. Come back to the joyful stuff. Come back to the way of living that I found uh, by becoming like you guys. It's compassion and care that's trickled down. And it trickled down to the Galatians... Watch this. He says, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment I preached the gospel to you at first. Now, a lot of people get sidetracked here and they want to figure out what that is. And we just don't know. It could possibly be the thorn in the flesh that he talks about in in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, A lot of people want to speculate. It's possibly his eyes. Like he may have had chronic like uh, return to to blurred vision or blindness or something. But we we just don't know. He says, uh, it was because of an affliction uh, that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and, and given them to me. That's why some people speculate it may have been a chronic return to that blindness that he had experienced on the road to Damascus. Regardless, the, the, the main point is, is bigger. There's a group of people who experience the compassion and care of Jesus flowing down through the compassion and care of the Apostle Paul. And even though he was a burden to them, they received him. Not only that, but in ancient Greek culture, diseases and disabilities were seen as divine discipline. Maybe even demonic possession. So everyone around them would have seen Paul's condition and thought, there's no way that that guy can be a man of God. There's no way that he can be a faithful follower of any deity. But yet they moved to him with compassion and care. They'd have ripped out their own eyes and given them to him. If that was scientifically a possibility. A lot of people say that's hyperbole. A lot of uh, commentators. I doubt it. I don't think it was. I think they loved him that much. I've never loved anyone that much, except for maybe a few people that share my last name. That I give them my eyeballs? That's intense. That compassion and care had flowed down. But now it was diverted. He says, what has become of this blessedness in verse 15 and verse 16? Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And how did it become diverted? By the Judaizers. They came in and he says to them, he calls them out for who they are. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that that you may make much of them. If you reverse engineer that, you'll see that what often diverts compassion and care is selfishness and narcissism. And that's what these Judaizers had. A heavy dose of. What did they want? They wanted to be made much of. 
If you reverse engineer that back, that verse backwards, they wanted to be made much of. They were powerful, influential, they had good uh, resumes, cool robes, and they wanted to be made much of there. They're narcissists. I've thought about this a lot, because I do think that in, in church leadership, ministry leadership, we often see narcissists rise to, to power and influence and I'm going to call us out, though, in it. I think one of the reasons we, we fail to call out narcissists is because inside we're all little baby narcissists. In the sight of us, apart from Christ changing us, we all want what we want. We all want our will. We all want our desires. We all want our own success. And in that... We sometimes give a pass to people who are blessing their own uh, traction, people who are, are blessing their own goals and their own comfort and their own dreams. That's what the Judaizers had done. So they sow division, they create false dichotomies, they slander Paul, they, they speak in compelling words, and, and they do it all appealing to the old selfish flesh of the people in the churches of Galatia. Because they know inside of all of us, until we are perfected in Christ, one day there will be a part of us that wants what we want, that wants to be made much of, and so they, they push in on that, they flatter the people there, but they're actually doing a bait and switch. They're trying to gain their own power, and they're trying to gain their own influence. Selfishness and narcissism, even tiny amounts of them will divert compassion and care every single time. Because it's the opposite of compassion and care. To love yourself and not love others is the exact opposite of compassion and care. It's the exact opposite of who Jesus was. And so might we see it when it crops up in ourselves? Might we see it when it crops up in our church leadership and among us in this church? And may we oppose it. May we oppose it together. Being made much of isn't always selfish, though. He wants to make sure they understand that. It's, he says it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. He'd done that with the church at Thessalonians. If you've, if you've read the, the letters to the churches of Thessalonica, there's one that starts with him just making much of them, but it's for a purpose, to make much of Jesus. If you're made much of for the glory of Jesus and Jesus alone, then in that case, that's a good purpose. He says, not only when I was present with you, my little children, he kind of ribs them, right? You're just listening to these people because they're in front of your face, and I'm hundreds of miles away. And so they've got kind of this home field advantage on you, but the truth is the truth, even if I'm not there with you in person to, to share it with you. So Paul remembers their compassion and care that had trickled down from Christ through him into their lives. And he calls them to remember it because he's also calling them out and confronting them for seeing it diverted. But here's the good news. The flow might be diverted in the churches of Galatia. Their compassion and care might be drying up. But the compassion and care of Jesus never stops flowing. And because the compassion and care of Jesus never stops flowing, Paul, who could have thrown in the towel and walked off, right? These people are difficult. This stinks. Don't they get it? I'm not going to waste my time writing this letter. I'll go minister to somebody who cares. I'll go talk to somebody who's ready to change. They're clearly not ready to change, knuckleheads. 
No. He could have done that, but instead he moves towards them with compassion and care. My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed. He refers to them as children. That's compassion and care. He speaks of the anguish in his heart. That's compassion and care. He desires their sanctification still, them becoming more like Jesus. That's compassion and care. He wants to be present with them, compassion and care. He's self-aware of his tone, that it might be misinterpreted, that it might be misunderstood. That's compassion and care. He's perplexed instead of angry. That's compassion and care. He could have walked out, but instead he rolls up his sleeves and he continues in compassion and care because the compassion and care of Jesus is flowing through his life. And so he exemplifies it and he beckons them to it. We need to do the same thing. Like the water flow issue in my backyard. There's a solution. I need to roll up my sleeves. I need to get out the machete and the weed eater and the shovel. And I need to nurture that trench. I need to nurture the flow of that water. I was convicted this week. Uh, every Tuesday and Thursday, 5 a.m., I play basketball. None of the guys are here to vouch for this. Thankfully, there's a couple guys from here to play, too. We lost four games in a row. I hate to lose. I'm not any good at basketball, but I hate to lose. Absolutely hate it. What's weird is about a month ago, I kind of lost it in the middle of basketball. Kind of acted like a complete jerk to everybody. My sarcasm was reeking. My anger was evident. My, my, uh, my example of Christ was non-existent. And so I was convicted by that. And so that morning as I'm walking in, I'm, I'm praying, God, help me to, even in this place, right? There's only nine other people here, but help me to reflect Christ in this. I didn't. Fourth game, by the fourth game, I was ready to quit. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was sarcastic. It was spilling out all over the place. And it was the opposite of compassion and care. Nine other folks there. That's it, you know. How much residual, right? Wednesday, I'm in line to drop the kids off at school. And uh, we get there early because Isaiah's on safety patrol. Super proud of him. It's usually not a long line, but we're behind this car. And they lock, drop their kid off and they kind of walk in. And then the police officer standing there comes over. He knows them. Starts talking through the window to them and keeping us from moving forward. He's laughing, having a good time. And my son in the back, one of my sons, I hear him blurt out, there's like a thousand cars behind you. Can't you see it? He got that from me. Because in my life, as I have lived my life before my son, there have been times where the compassion and care of Christ have been diverted. And one day maybe he'll be like a knucklehead like I was on Tuesday morning at basketball. The pastor of Mercy Village Church who looks like a complete idiot in front of all these other people because of the sin in his heart. Or maybe, by God's grace, if I nurture the compassion and care from Christ in my life, that compassion and care can spill out onto my children and transform their lives. Think about your life. 
the compassion and care of Christ must be nurtured so that it can spill from your life into the lives of others. Now, I'll give you one warning as we close. You live like that? You live your life with compassion and care for others? You're going to get hurt. You're going to be wronged. You're going to have, uh, have times where you want to quit. C.S. Lewis says this, There's no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The compassion and care will dry up. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of the tragedy of loving others and extending compassion and care is is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and and, and perturbations of love is, is hell. So might we take the risk of loving others with deep compassion and care? Jesus did. Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were giving no compassion and care towards him or others, Christ died for us. If you're not a Christian today, receive the compassion and care of Christ for you displayed on the cross. Trust the finished work of Jesus there and be saved. You can become part of his family today. If you have any questions about what that looks like, please let me know. I'd love to have that conversation with you. For those of us in Christ, be killing your selfishness, your narcissism, or it'll divert the compassion and care in your heart. Dry it up. So may we make war against our selfishness. May we remember who we were before Christ and who we've become by his grace. And may that in us develop humility and grace and kindness and compassion and care and might it kill our our selfishness as we nurture the flow of compassion and care. Lastly, did you see the recipients of the compassion and care of Christ? In the context of the book, there are people from every class, every gender, every ethnicity, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Second, in this passage precisely, it's Paul, who used to be a self-righteous persecutor of Christians. Yet he receives compassion and care for Christ. And the Galatian people, first time around, when they received the compassion and care on the first missionary journey, they were worshipers of earth and water and wind and fire. They were pagan to the core. And and the second time around, they'd become gullible, arrogant, deserters, hypocrites, legalists, Torah thumpers. And yet, the compassion and care of Christ flows down to them through Paul. Regardless, right, of who you are today or where you find yourself or a reflection of yourself on that list, those experiencing the downhill flow of Christ's compassion and care 
that list is a vastly encompassing one. And if you're in Christ today, it includes you. And that's beautiful. The compassion and care of Christ flows downhill. Sometimes we foolishly divert it, but it still keeps flowing. Might God give us grace to nurture the flow of that compassion and care in our families, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, everywhere we do life as the people of God. Father, thank you so much that, it, that your compassion and care is, has brought me to even this place. An inadequate mouthpiece of your immeasurable riches. So you got to do work in hearts because I can't do work in hearts. You got to transform people because I can't transform people. And you've got to take a message that was proclaimed faithfully, but certainly not with the beauty and magnitude that it deserves. And you've got to make it that in the hearts and minds and lives of your, your people. So do that today for us. Might we be marked by compassion and care for one another and for others. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone, and we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.